Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking about Black Lives Matter, the movement, the idea, the backlash uh, with Dr. Kwame Brown. He's a professor of psychology. He's also the co-founder of Symbiotic Swag, which is a clothing company that makes really amazing stuff. Um, so I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Um, professor Brown has been part of the Black Lives Movement from the beginning, and I think he's uh, he's very good at sort of teasing out what what it is and what it isn't. Uh, but before we get to that interesting conversation, uh, we could use your financial support at the podcast. The most obvious way to do this is to become a Patreon supporter of the podcast. If you go to www.patreon.com slash likephilpodcast, uh, you'll find our stuff. Um, there is going to be a video of this uh, particular episode, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's very, very entertaining. There's a video version of this podcast, which will be available to our Patreon supporters. Um, so the you can also support us in ways that are not financial. Uh, you can share our podcast in social media. You can leave us reviews, uh, which uh, especially on, on Apple, on iTunes, that's very, very helpful. It works the algorithms in our favor and brings our podcast to people's attention like, hey, check this out. You might like this, right? So that's, uh, that's very useful as well. This podcast is also, also brought to you by our sponsors. Our sponsors, the first one is Seb Furtado Photography. Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers private online photography courses for all levels. You know, the old expression, those who cannot do teach, uh, is proven false by Sebastian Furtado. He makes a lot of money as a professional photographer. He does fantastic work that's been shown in galleries. He does all sorts of uh, wonderful things, but he also knows how to teach really, really well, as well as how to do it. And I have personally witnessed people who have taken his classes and their skill level has advanced dramatically in a short amount of time. And as I've said before, my, my personal pet theory is that the reason why um, he's such a good photography teacher is that he doesn't teach it as a a sort of a sentimental romantic art form or something like that. He teaches it in a very practical way that somebody might teach you how to be a good plumber or a good electrician or, you know, a good at using a gun or something like that. Uh, he just looks at, you know, the, the camera is your tool and he will teach you how to use your tool very effectively. And then after you've taken the pictures, he'll teach you how to use software programs that help you to sort of beautify and bring out your pictures, make them their absolute best. So uh, that's uh, Seb Furtado Photography. This episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Good Mix Foods is a wonderful mix of, kind of seeds and nuts and dried fruits. It's made in Vermont. It's very, very healthy, very good for you. As many of you know, I've been um, having it for breakfast for, for a long time now. It's fantastic stuff. It's really, really good for you. Uh, if you're trying to lose some weight, it's really good for that. Um, you can 
have a bowl of this stuff with yogurt. That's the way I have it. And you're full for, you know, really long time, well until after after the middle of the day, you know, sort of one, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. It's fantastic. Um, if you uh, buy it online, you can get a discount. If you put in Likeville 15, you will get a 15% discount on your order. This episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. Uh, if you are from Montreal, you know that uh, Plateau Mile End is sort of the hipster paradise here in Montreal. And Elsa's is, you might say, is its capital. It's the it's a wonderful, wonderful place. It's reasonably priced, has a very good food, um, great drinks, and more than anything else, it has just a fantastic atmosphere. I mean, if you are going to be in Montreal, definitely go out of your way. Uh, make sure to go to Elsa's. It's on Roy Street, um, just near, on the corner of Dubillion and Roy Street in Plateau Montréal. It's a couple streets um, between Saint Denis and Saint Laurent, which are two of the main drags. This is a place where the locals go. It's you know wonderful place. There's lots of people in there that are you know writing screenplays and you know editing their their videos, their photographs, writing a novel. It's a wonderful ambiance. This episode is also brought to you by Café Lali and Carrie des Artistes Galerie d'Art. This is a, a symbiotic relationship. It's a, a cafe and an art gallery that are in the same space. It's a mother-daughter team. The mother manages the art gallery and the daughter manages the cafe. It's a wonderful place in St. Henry, which is... St. Henry is kind of the up-and-coming plateau in uh, the up-and-coming hipster neighborhood in Montreal, right by Atwater Market and Little Sheen Canal. Very, very nice uh, neighborhood. They have wonderful coffee, fantastic art, and a very bright, uh, sunny space that's on multiple floors. Definitely check that place out. And, you know, if you go to Café Lali and or Elsa's, make sure to tell them that we sent you. All right. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Kwame Brown. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. I'm John Faithful Hamer. Today, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Kwame Brown, who's a professor of psychology He's also the co-founder of Symbiotic Swag, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of things, but mainly sort of, I guess, Black Lives Matter, but I've been wanting to talk to you about uh, the movement for a long time. You've been um, active in it right from the beginning. Um, so you have come out with this t-shirt, uh, which is absolutely... Okay, just to tell you how, how amazed I am by this t-shirt... I've devoted an entire lecture in one of my classes to your T-shirt. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> to to the logo because it it's just an absolutely perfect illustration of um, a a I guess you might say like a counterattack to a particular kind of rhetorical game that people play, and people have been playing this since the beginning of time. I call it in my, I've called it in my classes uh, when I teach like intro to rhetoric and stuff like that. It's uh, the wrapping yourself in the flag strategy, mm -hmm. right? So let's say uh, phrenologists who said that there was a difference between like races and stuff like that back in the day. If you attacked phrenology, 
they wrapped their pseudoscience in the language of science. And so if you attack them, they right. would say, you don't hate phrenology. You hate science. You're anti-science. You're, you hate science, right? So same way like George W. Bush, when in that famous speech, he said, you know, they hate our freedoms. Yeah, no, no, they right. don't. I mean, they they hate American foreign policy. They they hate a bunch of things, but they don't give a shit what you're doing in like a club in New York City. Like, so you you take the thing that you like, and you wrap it in something larger, and you say, well, if you if you criticize this thing that I like, you're really saying that you hate mom and apple pie and the flag. Right. And right, so, right. what's ingenious yeah. about your your logo? Well, can you just describe for our listeners? I mean, I'm going to like post images of it, but can you describe for our listeners what your logo logo is? So, <clears throat> I just I took sort of a distressed American flag and um I just I, I took like a colonial font. <laughs> it's pretty purposeful on my part. And I just wrote the words, you know, I was thinking about trying to find a way to explain to people why Colin Kaepernick did what he did, you know, why Muhammad Ali said what he said, why Jackie Robinson has said what he said, you know, uh, after he retired from baseball. Um, and so I wrote the words, it, it was just sort of turned around in my mind for a while, and I wrote the words, I pledge allegiance to the principles for which the republic claims to stand. And that is, in a nutshell, you know, whether you have problems with methods from certain people who you know, claim the Black Lives Matter moniker or not, that's the message that people of color and black people, especially in this country, have been delivering since far before I or my parents were born. So. Yeah, well, it's it's absolutely ingenious because, you know, I think it's very, very telling. And I, you know, I, I, I mentioned this in the class where I'm talking about this, that the fake, uh, the fake Black Lives Facebook accounts and pages yeah. And Twitter Rush, accounts. The Russian bots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Russian hackers. It's very, very telling that if you look at, uh, if you look at some of those fake accounts, one common denominator is they would show. I mean, it was complete bullshit. It wasn't real, but they would show a Black Lives Matter like uh, protesters, and they would be burning the American flag, and that is such a powerful rhetorical move because what you're saying. Yeah is we are these people hate america we these people are not part of your tribe right like what you're saying is we're uh, we're holding uh, we're holding ourselves to our highest standard right this is like what uh, tanahasi coates says right he goes i'm basically just holding america to its own principles right in right. between the world and me like that's one of the really good moves that he makes in that book you know the the opposite would be if you look at like if we press rewind and go back to like the 1830s, 1840s, there were uh, two strands within the anti-slavery movement, right? There are people like Frederick Douglass and people like Theodore Dwight Weld who said, we are trying to make America live up to its promise. And so they, they basically went and re, uh, reinterpreted, sometimes in a little bit of a sleazy way, but they took some poetic license. They tried to reinterpret the founders intentions to say this is the true the true meaning of of america is emancipatory then you had people like william lloyd garrison uh who in boston who's a radical anti-slavery activist who burned the constitution on the july 4th and said this is an agreement with death and hell and the satan and stuff like that <laughs> and the thing is is like 
doing something like that may feel really good, but it's fucking stupid. Like it's really stupid as a, a movement strategy, right? I mean, the what I think is the most ingenious strategy is to do, you know, like what you're doing, where you say like, actually, no, we're, you know, you can't wrap yourself, you can't wrap police brutality and and lawlessness in in the flag. There, there's nothing, yeah. Yeah. right? I mean. So what gave you the idea to do this? I mean, was it the whole Nike thing? Was it the... No, it's something I've been thinking about for a while. And my my best ideas always come when I'm pissed off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's so funny. Like, um, you know, I, I'm a spoken word poet as well, as you know. And, yeah. um, you know, my students always ask me, you know, you said, are you going to gonna write a piece you know, soon. And, and I say, well, let me get pissed off about something first. <laughs> and, you know, I'll let you know, man. You yeah. Know, like, yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I'm, when I'm happy, you know, bro, I'm on, I'm on, a, I'm on a tennis court or I'm, you know, in the gym or playing with my kids, you know, when I, when I am pissed off, I write or create an idea. And so symbiotic swag was sort of created in general um, to not attack, but to try to help turn on its ear some of the things that make me angry. Um, you know, racism, colorism within, in my community. Um, you know, the, the, what, the what falling is, what in is, love. What with, is colorism? Uh, A lot of our listeners will, uh, not, will yeah. not be like familiar with that term. So, Colorism is uh, number one pervasive throughout the world wherever uh, Western Europeans especially have colonized the land. And that is the preference for lighter skin because of its proximity to the representation of power, which is white. Uh, and it's why you have a billion dollar skin bleaching industry in Nigeria, and, you know, uh, India, the Dominican Republic. Uh, well, in, in South Sosa, yeah, yeah. Right? So, you in know, Brazil, uh, but in South Asia, the the sort of the preference for lighter skin um, has been there for thousands of years long before there were Europeans there. Sure, and yeah, and it, here's here's the thing: um, a tree can grow in a forest because seeds fell, uh, right? Uh, a tree can also grow in a park because people planted it. So those two things exist in different places for potentially different reasons. Uh, this particular colorism exists for this reason. I mean, and it can be traced back pretty. You know, it was pretty intentional, right? Mm -hmm. Lighter skinned slaves were picked for higher positions. That's why we have the term house Negro, mm -hmm. right? Trust me, you know, being of mixed heritage, I heard that a lot growing mm -hmm. up, right? You know, and, and my wife and I are both mixed and we make jokes like that all the time. Like, you know, you you know you was in the kitchen, you know, fixing <laughs> lemonade from NASA, you know, like so um <laughs> so that's you, know, uh, you, you pretty... wound me, Kwame. You wound me. So. <laughs> well I told you, right? I'm like I'm a direct descendant of Maryland slaveholders. It's, uh, it's, you know, I, and I, when I found that out, it totally changed the whole, cause I always had this like self-righteous Canadian attitude, like, oh, you fucked up Americans. Like, and I always felt like, well, I'm, I'm above these issues, you know, and I'm studying, I'm studying in grad school in Baltimore. But then I found out that, uh, on my father's side, we directly were back to the Dorseys, which were the largest slaveholders on the Eastern mm -hmm. shore. And then suddenly it, the whole problem became more of a family problem. And then it's like, Oh God, like, and I, I actually, a guy that I, that I was like buddies with, he lived in my building. 
on uh, on Charles Street in Baltimore, and like he his last name was Dorsey, and he's like this this black guy, it, and we we were like hang out all the time at the pub. And when we figured this out, we suddenly realized that we were like connected, if not by blood, then definitely by history, which is a yeah. very very powerful experience you know, to realize that you know the past didn't go anywhere yeah no and and i i think that's one of my main quibbles and as you know i've been involved in some discussions on your wall in the past uh John. <laughs> and i, I get past, i get to a past point decade yeah yeah i get to a point where uh i just start gifting people and memeing them <laughs> <laughs> because it gets a little frustrating after a while but but the fact this idea that the past doesn't affect the present. I mean, I'm like, yo, homie, you can't get over the shit your big brother did to you when you were 11 still, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You still mad you didn't make the football team in high school. Mm -hmm. But yet, folks are supposed to just like, we're, we're supposed to just squash it. And, you know, one of the things about the flag that I try to explain to people, can you imagine, you know, everybody wants to draw these parallels to the Holocaust and... and, and you know, the Holocaust was horrible. Uh, it's one of many, you know, horrible um, atrocities committed on behalf of power throughout the world since humans have been in existence, right? This is a thing that part of this, a facet of human nature is a thing we do, right? So if you were to ask Jewish athletes to stand for the Nazi flag, I think people can pretty well imagine what the response would be. Yet, and still, atrocities equal to or greater than the Holocaust committed over a much longer period of time, under this same flag, people are expected to stand because we're supposedly all together. But it's the same flag, yo. It's mm -hmm. the same flag. And so, man, you have to transform it somehow. You either have to transform what you do or you have to transform your symbol. But you can't take the same symbol of what you did that there was you know what you did before was done under that same symbol and <clears throat> expect me to stand for the same symbol while some of the remnants of that are still happening obviously you know I, I think i find a lot of people think they they can assume the position of educating people of color about their own experience <laughs> to find a nice way to phrase that um uh, by the way, can can I cuss on your podcast? Of course, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, this is a this is a big. This is, we're at the big big kid table here. So. Okay, good. This All right, grown these mother the grown table. These motherfuckers, yeah, uh, <laughs> put themselves in a place to educate people of color about their own experience and say, well, you know, you have to realize such and such. A, guaranteed, man. Like all these discussions have been had at our dinner table and in the barbershop, right? They're conservative versus liberal discussions in the barbershops and black communities every day. Like I grew up, you you go in and get your fade at mm -hmm. Pride's Barbershop or Artist Barbershop where, I, you know, my, my best friend, his dad owned that barbershop growing up. You know, you hear all these discussions, you know, my, my parents at the dinner table, my grandparents. But people need to realize things that like, you know, I watched my father get harassed by police. They said, <laughs> um, they said that my father fit the description of somebody who robbed a liquor store. Now, I want to paint this picture for you, bro. Like, my dad looks 
especially when he was younger, looked almost exactly like Gregory Hines in a suit. <laughs> I've um, seen pictures of your dad. He looks yeah, so yeah, – yeah, yeah. so he, he comes correct all the time, perfectly dapper and, oh, yeah. you know, serious yeah, – yeah. You know, so, ner- nerdy kind of. <laughs> this dude wear what? This dude used to wear a suit to the mall. Bro. Like, <laughs> this is that guy. Okay. Yeah. Now we're in a Buick Park Avenue at the time. I think this is uh, early '90s, late '80s, in a Buick Park Avenue that has university administration tags. I and my sister are in the back seat. My mom's in the front seat. We're all dressed nicely to go to what I thought was the best restaurant in the world at the time, Red Lobster. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that there were better restaurants than that until I got to grad school. I was like, wow, oh man, this is like the movies. Uh, but um, <laughs> so we get stopped and the cops like got his hand on his gun. He shined the light in and shined the light on me and my sister. And he's like, you know, you fit the description of somebody. I mean, how sway, how does he fit the description? You know, I, I can also point to a situation with my best friend. Um, we were a bunch of us were hanging out, all good kids, you know, all in school. None of us had any criminal record whatsoever. Somebody in the same chain of bowling alleys that Alan Iverson, you know, had his. We're, we're from the same place, right? Had his uh, the, the incident in. Um, somebody said we had a gun, so this plainclothes cop comes in and takes my friend's arm, twists behind his back, and slams him face first up against a wall. Now, if you knew my best friend. You would know how ridiculous this was. This dude, if I call him right now, he'll be like, hello, Kwame. How are you? Like this, that's this. My mom used to call the guy Eddie Haskell. So he's like, he's like Urkel. That's, yeah. That's not Urkel. He's not, not so nerdy, he's not that but he's bad. like super polite. Like this dude is super polite, super yeah. nice. This dude, when he got his first job as an engineer, bought a Mercedes for his dad. Right. This is that guy. Wow. That's the guy. That, meanwhile... He's leaving me alone because I'm lighter skin, right? Mm-hmm. Leaving me alone. And at the time, I was hella violent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the other thing is that people, it, it's obvious to me that police pick out young males of color to, to pick on and, and males of color in general, right? So this is, and, and, and females of color are not even excluded from that, right? Females of color have been brutalized, raped. Uh, I mean, all these stories are present in our neighborhoods. My father-in-law, who is ex-vice chair of the school board, ex-principal, has been working with cops closely for years. You know what his worst fear is? What? Being being thrown in a river, handcuffed and thrown in a river by cops. Wow. Okay? Like, That's... my grandfather, I got a reckless driving ticket in grad school. My grandfather would not go into the courthouse with me, because my, my, my stepmom's dad, right? is uh, my, my biological mother's white, but my stepmom is by, I was raised by two black parents, right? So my grandfather's brown skin. And, uh, oh, that's okay. That makes so much sense. Cause yeah, some, yeah, yeah, something yeah. I've always been confused about you. Cause you, you seem completely black. To me. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and, but okay. That explains a lot. So yeah, you were culturally, raised... I, I didn't yeah. know, I didn't know white people growing up. So mm-hmm. I, I, my biological mother is, you know, had problems. Right. So she did not, raised me. Um, she's heroin addicts and you know, the whole nine. And so I wasn't raised by her past the age of four or five, where we lived on the campus of university of Massachusetts. And, okay. uh, so I was raised by two black parents in a black neighborhood, black high school, black college. I didn't know any, I didn't hang out with any white people like to, for, you know, like saying until grad school. Mm-hmm. 
And all of a sudden, I had white roommates, and I was like, oh, wow, you guys do some strange things, and you have parties where you don't dance. Um, <laughs> but, but like, so, so my, my, my brown-skinned grandfather would not go into the courthouse with me because he wanted to improve my chances of getting a light sentence. Pun intended? Yeah, pun intended. <laughs> okay. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, like, you. oh, yeah. man, you're, you're all light, okay? You fell, you're all that's right. Okay. A, that's amazing. Yeah. That's a, yeah, well, I mean, but the thing is, know. is smart smart criminals can actually play this, right? So I, I had this game. I know this story. Yeah, I know yeah, yeah, yeah. Please yeah. tell the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. when I was yeah. a, a little, little like, troublemaker teenager, we used to get like a, you know, we would do it. We would run the scam in different ways, different times. But usually it would be about like four or five of us. And there'd be like one black kid. And he would just... You know, even like the one kid that we would work with a lot was who you know online, Latif Martin, right? Like, yeah, we yeah, working, I know Latif. And, and yeah, Latif yeah, is yeah. actually like a total like uh, Comic Con nerdy guy. He's like yep, he yep. was <laughs> he, he wasn't into hip hop. He was into D and D. He was into like he was kind of like he wanted to be a warlock or something. But when we were doing this, he would dress up like in total kind of like hip hop gear. He would like even one time he even had the full like kind of the the boot boombox on the shoulder and everything like that <laughs> like and, radio Raheem. yeah he would like just like dress like really kind of like like thugged out like you know like a rapper and so he would go into the store and would just you know walk around and every single all the people in the store would be following him around because they thought he was going to steal meanwhile the white kids would rob the place fucking blind we would <laughs> rob the place blind we would be shoving everything in our backpacks and all that stuff and then we would like meet back at like the metro uh which is a subway for for you guys we would meet back at the subway stop and we would divvy the stuff up you know in like four <laughs> or five but we would completely and also like the uh the drug dealers in my neighborhood and in a, they would specifically play on the the sort of the racial biases of the cops and so for oh, runners yeah. for people to like take stuff from one place to the next they would always choose like a like a, a like a white girl white guy looks very conventional and have them transport stuff and like for a long time oh yeah mules for, have been picked like that for a long time yeah and so like like, yeah, yeah. like uh you know i won't go to all the details but the the Canadian government drastically increased the price of cigarettes. And so that immediately overnight created this huge market for black market cigarettes. And almost all the black market cigarettes came in through the Indian reservation across the river in Kanawaki. It's a Mohawk uh, reservation. And so I would go over there. I would get on my BMX bike and like bike across the bridge and go to the, to the res. And I had friends there and I would buy like cartons of cigarettes on the res. And then I would bike back over and I would sell them like on the avenues and stuff like that. But they specifically did that because if they had Mohawk kids do it, mm -hmm. they would be pulled over immediately. Right? And it's, it's wild, John. Nobody choked you out for selling those cigarettes either. No, no. And, and actually, no, this, the true story is even, even worse than I'm saying it. Because the true, true story is I actually did get caught by the cops at various times for doing things. And they were incredibly nice and kind and compassionate to me. Most of the time, they didn't even like take me to the station. They just took me back to my house, gave me a lecture, told my mom. My mom gave me like shit and like left me alone. Right? They didn't actually, uh, you know, if I got caught like shoplifting in a mall, rather than like call the police and take me away so that I would have like, or they instead just like called my mother 
and I would get in trouble and they would put me on the on a list and say, if you do it again, then we're going to like call the police. Wait, so, and, and here's the point I want to make, too. That's really how it should go. For all kids. For everybody. Yeah. Right. Right. That's that's what that's the first thing you do. You know, it's funny. Um, I've had so many people sort of pull this personal responsibility card on me and they say, well, maybe if you would commit crimes, you know, the parents, the parents, it's the parents need to teach their kids to be personally responsible. And like, well, I know that some families don't teach that, but I don't, I literally don't know any black families that don't teach personal responsibility, like as like a basic tenet of parenting. Um, you know, my, my daughter just lost a, lost a cupcake off of that tip uh, today, man. She lost a cupcake. So, you know, <laughs> y'all pray for her. Uh, but, she's, in, she's in timeout right now? Right. No, yeah. no, we don't do timeouts. Uh, um, we, we use, uh, you know, lots of I, – I use lots of, like, Vince Vaughn-length soliloquies on my children <laughs> and um, punishment and, and then sometimes yelling. Uh, but <laughs> we, um, you know – my dad, I was, I was fighting a lot when I was, you know, coming into my teen years. Uh, I was a little, I was a small kid. I mean, I'm 6'1", 200 pounds now. That was not my body type when I was young. I was a little like, like the doctor could have checked me out like from across the room. Like, like, look, you know, your heartbeat's good, son. I can see it from here. <laughs> but, uh, we, I, man, I, um, I was fighting so much. My dad. And see, we, we had, we had some privilege. My, we didn't have money, uh, but my parents were well-known educators and my mom grew up with the sheriff, uh, grew up with and went to college with, you know, a judge in the area. So <laughs> my dad and them conspired to send me to a prison for a day. They like literally, I guess they shipped me into some sort of scared straight kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so like that was the links to which you know, my, my parents were willing to go to teach me responsibility for my actions. You know, some people, because of, and, and I guess the other thing I want people to understand is from a psychosocial perspective. I mean, some people don't end up with the tools with which to do stuff, right? And um, so it's, it's like this. Uh, and, and it may be that someone abdicated their responsibility somewhere along the line, right? I'll give you an example uh, from from lawn mowing. <laughs> yeah, I'm going somewhere with this. John. <laughs> uh, last year, man, last year I left my I had a lawnmower and a backup lawnmower that I got from family. I left my lawnmowers out in the rain, John. Uh, you know, apologies to my father-in-law. Uh, <laughs> I left them out in the rain, uh, and and of course, you know, the fuel line and all that kind of stuff gets messed up when you do that. And so my lawn was growing. And it was growing, but I didn't have money to fix it. I didn't have money to, to pay somebody to do it. So if I couldn't borrow a lawnmower, the lawn grew too much. And so, yeah, like, I know now, you know, it's growing, but I don't have a fucking lawnmower. Man. <laughs> so when I finally, and I can't afford one, right? I know it's my fault that, that the lawnmowers are broken, but I can't afford to replace them. See, the thing is, if I was rich or even affluent and I left my lawnmowers out in the rain, I could just go pick up another one right away that month. But for me, yo, I had to wait months to yeah. be able to buy a lawnmower. So yeah, I know I messed up. I know that's my fault. Yeah. But I couldn't afford a lawnmower until last month. Now, because I finally bought my first lawn, new lawnmower in my, in my life, you know, I was able to get that. 
dude, I wash that thing every time I mow the lawn now. Yeah. I went in my garage three times at night to just stare at it because it was so beautiful. <laughs> I remember you told me, you, I, I asked right? you, to, you're like, I'm looking at the lawnmower. Yes, and you were like, I, all like, it was like love. It was, it was, it was right, kind of, it was almost it weird. Me. Yeah, it was almost weird. Right, and so, yeah. so that's the real story of people in poverty who get opportunity. I'm not saying I'm in poverty. I'm just giving a lawnmower example, yeah. folks. I'm, I'm an yeah. educator. My wife's a teacher. We struggle, but we're, we're not poor, right? So, but just that analogy, you know, kind of teaches you a little bit. Like, yes, I, and I think part of the problem too is that people flatten morality, right? So you're like, I was, I was in Starbucks once and these guys were like, you know, we just really need to clean up the discourse and people are all these cuss words. And I said, you know, and, they were, and I said, well, wouldn't you be more concerned about war and like atrocities? And they're like, well, that's wrong too. <laughs> i'm like bro you just put the f word on par with genocide as like they're both wrong it's like you know i know you cheated on your wife and ruined your family but you also left a glass on the counter yeah. <laughs> you pay for both of those so yeah. like i mean come on like yeah and so i i see people and they're like somebody will get some kid will get the hell beat out of them or like get killed by the cops and people are like well he did steal those cigarettes. Uh, you know, I guess, I guess that'll teach him. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I actually, when he tries I, to steal cigarettes in the afterlife, he won't do that now. Well, to, so. to sort of extend on your lawnmower example, when I'm, when I'm teaching on the subject of privilege to my students, I, I, I teach it that if you are very underprivileged or very overprivileged, you get screwed. You get screwed in either end because people who are overprivileged get so many get out of jail free cards that they often become basically like sociopaths. Like they, they become, no they become yeah. like absolutely because like, uh, you know, this, this one guy, I mean, it's a pretty story that you can find anywhere, but this one guy that uh, I knew was a former student of mine and this guy just, he radiated kind of entitlement and he had his uh, father was very, very rich lawyer and had political connections and connections in law enforcement and in the, in the, and anything this guy did, if he crashed a car, if he like raped a girl at a party, his dad could like throw influence and money at it and get him off completely. Right. Well, uh, eventually, not to go into the whole story, but eventually in his mid 20s, he did something really, really terrible. And he ended up like going to jail for, for a long time. But I, I, I could see from the first time I met this kid that his biggest problem in life was his privilege, right? Yes. His his yep. father basically giving him, and the opposite end of the spectrum is what you're talking about, where um, if you have, if you are really, really in a rough place, then like one mistake can cost you, you know, forever. Or like a couple of bad decisions, you, you don't get any do-overs at all, right? Like, so for instance, to, get, to go back to my example, I said of me, being like a little brat when I was a teenager and shoplifting and things like that. The first time I got a real job, it was, uh, you know, I had like Joe jobs working for doing like furniture stuff for antique dealers and having a paper route and stuff. But the first time I got like a, like a jobby job was working as a bagger in a grocery store. And I will never forget this as long as I live. I, I mentioned this to my students all the time. The supervisor at the grocery store, when I went and applied, he put my name through a database and my name came back as having been caught shoplifting 
in uh, in like th- the mall where the grocery store was. And so he sat, he called me into his office, just me and him one-on-one. And he said, look, I put your name through a database and it came back that you were caught like shoplifting a couple of years ago in this mall. Um, can you tell me what's going on? And I said, yeah, that was a period of my life. I was being stupid and I, you know, I, I learned my lesson and I make my money. Uh, I make my money like by doing valuable work or giving people like stuff that they need. I don't take away from people. I mean, part of it was actually selling drugs and cigarettes, but anyway, leave that alone. But I wasn't like, (laughs) I wasn't like stealing. I wasn't, I wasn't taking anything that was somebody else's. I was just providing somebody with something they wanted labor or a product. Right. But so I told him, you know, I, I would never do that again. And I actually never did do that again ever. Right. And he gave me a second chance. He said, all right. He goes, uh, uh, I'm going to give you a chance because I know like I made bad decisions sometimes when I was a kid and like, um, but you know, I'm going to keep my eye on you like for the first six months. And if there's anything weird, I, I, you know, I'm going to be a little bit, you know, I'm going to be like maybe second guessing you, but I'm going to give you a chance. Now I know a Haitian kid from, uh, one neighborhood over from mine who applied to exactly, I only found out about this like 15 years later. He applied to the exact same grocery store. His name flashed up in exactly the same way, and he was not given the job. Now, if you accused that supervisor, who was uh, a, wh- a white guy, if you accused him of being racist, he could tell you, and he could tell you with a straight face. He could say, what are you talking about? This kid has a history of actually, oh my God, your kid is so cute. Wow. Anyway, um, the I could hear your kid in the background, but <laughs> if he if like uh, if you accuse him of racism, he could say, "Well, this kid has a history of like theft. Why would I want to hire somebody like that?" And he would be telling the truth. But what wouldn't be included in that is the fact that he gave me a break. Exactly right. the same guy, and I only found out about this like way later on. So that whole like lawnmower example that uh, should we sort of unequally kind of put the law forward, right? I mean, that's like that's like the, the harsh question. I mean, I think that's a lot of like what, if I understand you're, I mean, you've been in there right from the beginning with the whole Black Lives Matter thing. And like, it seems to me like a lot of what you're saying is the law is, it seems to me like you're saying two things. You're saying, first of all, police are behaving in a lawless manner, which is true. But you're also saying that they are applying the law in an unequal fashion. Can you sort of explain what yeah, you mean by so, that? So I think it's, it's so funny. How many times in a position do I not get to say this? Uh, because I'm forced into defending something, defending the one thing that people are criticizing. All this stuff is multifactorial, right? So there are cops that are abusive because of stuff that happened to them in their childhood. And, and, and they're abusive towards everyone in general. I mean, it's a general problem. It's a general problem with mental health and police. It's a general problem with the idea that because I hold access to power that I am the law, there's a general problem with the attitude that violence is a solution to all problems and that the, the, violent, the most violent person in the room is the biggest, largest hero. You know, the, what I call the John John McClain mm-hmm. uh, phenomenon, right? 
And then within that, there is embedded an anti-black, anti-brown, anti-native, which we never talk about. Oh, here, bias. here we do all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you guys. It's, do, it's but, the big, it's the big problem yeah. here. I mean, yeah, there's way it, more it, native people than there are black and brown people here. So, yep, and and, and exactly. And so, because there's so few native people here in America, they get erased too, right? So they get erased above and beyond everybody else. The 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 problems on reservations with, I mean, that right now, um. God, I can't remember where it is. I, I can't remember which state it is. And I just read this this morning while I was making pancakes. Uh, um, and th- even that, you know, juxtaposition. But there are women disappearing from reservations. Don't drink and drive, Kwame. Don't pancake. Yeah, yeah. Don't pancake and don't, read. Don't yeah. pancake and read. No, yeah, no, no. Never. That's dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> mind is a terrible thing, right? Dave <laughs> Will. Um, or was that George Bush? One of them. Uh, so, um, so yeah. I this idea that what what I. What I have a problem with, I think what I have the biggest problem with is that people think they're like, yeah, dude, but Martin Luther King, and then like, okay, yeah, um, so yeah, the, it's not a problem anymore. Like, like mm-hmm. they shot Martin Luther King, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, people are like, well, you should be more like Martin Luther King. They murdered him. Like, yeah. And also, you if, really you wanted, want it, right? if you wanted yeah. to be more like Martin Luther King, you would uh, carry a gun. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then and and then obviously, you know, have they have huge problems with Malcolm X? But uh, I'm gonna tell you this: if we had had a son, his name would have been Malik after after that man. So I'll tell you where I stand. But but he here's the and and it's wild. You know, James Baldwin once said, you know, white white men all over the world can say, "Give me liberty or give me death." A minute, a black man says that, right? A minute, a black man says that. He's seen as a criminal. He's seen as a potential threat. He's seen as a terrorist, right? So this embedded bias, there's an embedded bias within our other problems, right? So what do I want, right? You know, so, so people think that black people want special treatment. That's what people think. They think that black people want to make excuses for crimes. No, man. Like, no black people I know want crimes to go unprosecuted, Right? Why do people not cooperate with police? Why? Because a lot of times they're trying to get somebody. We know this. We know this. See, I, one of your friends took exception. Uh, and in fact, a mutual friend of ours took exception when I said once, because you haven't lived there, you don't know. And they don't like that because they read statistics. And they're like, yo, I have P-values. I have averages. I can read. I'm smart. I know you're smart. I know you're smart, but you're ignorant. And there's two different things, right? So if you haven't lived in a neighborhood like that where you've seen it, you don't even know what questions to ask. You don't even know how to peep the game. You don't even know what to be suspicious of in the stats. For example, in low-income neighborhoods for years, this is known. Police have been massaging the stats, this stuff's been going on for a long time, for a long time. And what they've done, it's real slick over time. And I'm not saying that there's like these two guys in smoking jackets with pipes and like, you know, a laptop controlling everything. It's not a conspiracy like that, but it's a conspiracy of both uh, happenstance, circumstance, well, happenstance, circumstance, and purposefulness all in one, right? Mm-hmm. So. People started redlining neighborhoods a long time ago because people don't want to live around violence, right? Where does violence happen? All over the world. 
where people are economically disenfranchised, right? That's just what happens. That's what neighborhoods become violent every time, right? So people want to say, okay, it's a lot of the time, a lot of the time, not always. There's, there's there's like, there are places that are quite, uh, that are quite poor and don't have, uh, and don't have like have practically no violence in in terms of that way. Yeah. But, but where you don't see it is where people have enough. Right. So, so you got to say, well, you know, not every, you know, it's one of those logic problems. Like, uh, every Taurus is a Ford, but not every Ford is a Taurus, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, um, like the Caribbean studies are the best on this. If you look at like an, a, a country like Antigua, right? Antigua is is a you know fairly fairly not a very wealthy Caribbean island at all. It has un I I've, I I love Antigua. You know, my my wife and I we love it. We went to our honeymoon there. Antigua has incredibly low rates of violent crime, very very low crime, and it's poor. Whereas you go to like some other islands like like Jamaica that have exactly the same history and have the kind of the same levels of poverty, you have like some of the highest uh, violent crime rates on planet Earth. Like and, so, and you there's not you a direct a connection, right? Well, there's there's a direct connection, but there's not there's other factors involved, right? That's yeah. what I mean. This stuff is multifactorial, right? Yeah. But I don't. I think it would be insane to say that that's because people from Antigua have better character than Jamaicans, right? But that's that would, what people say. That would be weird, yeah. I yeah, think, that, I think they've, they've built up, I right? think Antiguans have built up uh, a certain kind of, like a certain kind of culture, a certain kind of, which is just very healthy. you know. And, and I, also they were untouched by a lot of stuff. There's a lot of purposeful exploitation of Jamaica over years that has not touched Antigua in the same way. Just like Dominican Republic and Haiti, on the same island have not had the same experience with power. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's another thing entirely. I mean, and, and also what we find is that we find the violence and, and the strife in low income neighborhoods that are surrounded by opulence. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so what you find is that where people flaunt wealth and we have a culture where we flaunt wealth. If you have another culture where it's everyone's working hard, Right. It's cool. Like, like there are whole generations of families of, of people in West Virginia or, you know, uh, uh, the plains that have been farming the land. for, And that's how everybody lives there, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem, like I, I worked for Fairfax County uh, for a long time in Virginia. And that's one of the richest, one of the five richest counties in the, in the United States. Oh, wow. That's like one of the worst places to be poor is in a rich place, yeah. right? Because that's what happens. So like when you're poor... In uh, New York, you're trapped, mm-hmm. right? When you're poor, where people are living off the land, hey, like you can make a life work and you got family and you got community. But when you're stuck and you are three generations in the same projects, right? That's, you know, you look at what they did to the Bronx in the 60s and 70s. I mean, this is, we're trapping people in a, in, in a, um, between a rock and a hard place, right? You, yeah. you you watch the show Power? No, I've never watched it. So there's this line in the uh, song to the show. It's written by the singer Joe, and uh, it's a, it's a collaboration between him and Fifty Cent. There's this line in there that says, "I'm from the richest town. Uh, I, this is a big rich town, and I'm from the poorest part." That line right there. That's everything. That's mm-hmm. everything. Because what happened is people literally, you know what redlining is, John. Sure, sure, sure. Some of your readers well, actually, might not. Maybe, maybe tell the listeners like what redlining yeah. is. 
So, um, number one, I encourage people to watch uh, the documentary The 13th. Uh, it's produced by Ava DuVernay. It's, and on, it's, not, it's on Netflix. Yeah. Right, it's on Netflix. It's not every factor involved, but it does address some of the factors in violence. And one of the things that happened in New York and in other municipalities and other urban areas throughout the late 60s and early 70s especially, which actually is tied in with the, the, the advent of hip-hop, the formation of hip-hop culture. But they redlined. They did what's called redlining, which means they drew literally red lines around a map and said, this is the poor area. This is what values are here. And outside of this red line, we're going to elevate the values of these homes. Inside this red line, we don't give home loans. Right? There's no home ownership. This was conspiratorial policy among banks, which they've now made laws about that now the Trump administration is trying to, to repeal, right? So mm-hmm. peep the game right there, right? It was discriminatory and it was definitely meant to disenfranchise people of color. And see now what they do, because those neighborhoods were redlined, and then you, you combine that with white flight. When we move out to the suburbs, white people move further out or move back into the city, which is what's happening in New York, Detroit, DC right now, right? So you combine white flight with redlining. Now you have a neighborhood where industry has left. The housing is atrocious, right? Uh, you don't have grocery stores. You don't have economic opportunity. What are people supposed to do? So people form these alternative markets, right? Mm-hmm. Form these alternative markets. Then because you don't have a governmental structure that's, that's sort of policing these internal markets, what do you do? You have to police it yourself, right? Yeah. Bang. You got and you got to come together, right? You know, some folks' uh, families broke apart because of the strife. Now you you got a new family, right? So this is all happening in these cities. So now, a decade later, in the '80s, when cops go in, they're being told this is a violent neighborhood. No one's looking at the history. No one's looking at what happened. This is a violent neighborhood, right? So now you treat people in this neighborhood as such. Everyone's an enemy combatant. Everybody's a potential threat because this is a violent neighborhood. So what, how do you treat people that are potential threats, right? It's known fact that people are more likely to see black children as older than white children of the same age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're seeing young children, 11, 12, as potential enemy combatants. How do you treat them? Do you take them aside and talk to them? No. You roust them. You treat them like shit, right? You try to try to pin something on them. Furthermore, I, I, I think people should watch the documentary Crime and Punishment on Hulu, um, which is – I've been following these cop stories for some time. I'm, I'm glad that they were filmed. But it's whistleblowers in the NYPD. And after quotas, arrest quotas were outlawed, they were still being pressured. There, there are sergeants and lieutenants on tape talking about this. So it's not like some pure conjecture. The George Soros and the liberal media didn't tell anyone this. These are actual cops recording their superiors, putting pressure on them to raise arrest quotas. Who's the easiest person to arrest? A black kid, right? These extrajudicial uh, beatings and killings are not about fear. Otherwise, Dylan Roof would have been shot. Otherwise, this guy Elroy, um, who was threatening motorists, I, I forget where it was, and uh, ended up shooting two deputies when they were just trying to reason with him, right? And ended up having to shoot out with cops. Otherwise, he would have been shot. He would have been without us. It's not about fear. It's about hate and the ability to exert your power on somebody that it, where it will be excused. And, and my, my father taught me a lesson about that. 
when I was a kid. And, and I think you've seen me share this before. I was yelling at my mom, right? That I was, you know, an angry kid, you know, a lot of stuff happened to me, like happens to a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. growing up. And so, you know, I was rejected by a parent the whole night, blah, blah, blah. So you got issues, right? Mm-hmm. So I was yelling at my mom and uh, my dad came home and he said, well, why are you yelling at your mom? I said, she makes me so mad. He said, I want you to get in my face and scream at me right now. Now, my pops, <laughs> my, my pops was a, a three-sport standout and could do lateral raises with me hanging off his forearm until I was a teenager. Oh, my God. This guy is, you know, built solid. A presence. Uh, a presence. A real presence. Right, yeah. right. Right. And he was, he was, uh, so I, I said, well, you know, no. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> you give to your father, no. Uh, and he said, so then you're not yelling at her because you're you're angry because you're angry at me right now he said you're not yelling at her because you're angry you're yelling yelling at her because you know she's not going to do what i might do mm-hmm. right you you know she's not a threat to you right yeah. so you're picking and choosing who you have your outbursts on yeah right and that's what it is it's just like my oldest when she picks on her sister yeah Oh, right. this is exactly that guy that I was telling you about that, whose book is coming out in December. He's He teaches at, uh, uh, what is it, George Washington, I think it is. Anyway, in, uh, D- in, okay. in, in D.C. But uh, he, Jason Brennan, Jason Brennan, when all else fails, uh, he says, you know, the reason why cops, you know, part of it, you know, you can explain it as being racism. And he goes, yeah, that's like to some extent true. But he goes, uh, there's plenty of places in the rural white parts of the United States where the cops have nothing but contempt for the white rednecks, white rednecks that they're policing. But there's a reason why they don't beat the shit out of them and they don't like beat up their kids because they will fucking shoot back. They will shoot without any hesitation. If they find out a particular cop has been tuning up a few of teenagers in their family, they will single out that cop when he's not at work and beat the living shit out of him outside of a outside of like a safe way. And they will like he will know. So they know that they cannot sort of like exactly what your dad was saying with you yelling at your mom. They know that they can't act with impunity. So he and says, and his whole thing is like, which I think is very interesting, is he says, you know, explaining all of this away with racism, he goes, racism is a big factor, but the biggest factor is within the culture of law enforcement, a feeling that uh, in certain communities, you can act with impunity and there well, will be well, no consequences. Well, here's the thing. So that is racism, right? I mean, what racism is defined as the attitude and, and the projection of that attitude and the acting on that attitude that one group is lesser in any way, right? So if they think that black people have less power and that's why they exert their force on them, that's racism, you know? So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have this caricature of racism where they believe that racism is when every white person is walking around with this like thought cloud above them with like a picture of Sambo. Right, mm-hmm. and then they say, and then they say "nigger" when nobody's around. They, they think that's what racism is. No, racism is a set of attitudes that makes one group of people more expendable. Right, and it's a type of bigotry. It's a type of particularly pervasive prejudice, as is the term "white trash." We use the term "white trash" to make people that don't have much money and that maybe got that Camaro on blocks in front of their trailer seem more expendable to us, so we can treat them a certain way. But again. Why did they? Why did? Why did they not do that as much? Because those folks 
have weapons, right? But here's the thing. And they have political they have political power and, and they, they have, have political power. Right? Like this yep. is a you know that that book Hillbilly Elegy by JD Vance. Uh-huh. It's yep. uh it's an amazing book, but I mean he describes this this culture that he grew up in this hillbilly culture his mom was like a heroin addict and like a op- opioid addict all this stuff and like he just grew up in an incredibly fucked up dysfunctional like situation with a lot of abuse and a lot of neglect and a lot of like and but he says the difference between when he got to Yale and he got to law school and he compared notes with like you know with like black guys that he met from like the ghetto he said the difference is that even in these really like messed up neighborhoods that he grew up in, uh, the pil- the police were mainly people that had connections to the community. So it was like a white community being Bingo. being like policed by a white community, and you had like friends in the force. And so yeah, I mean they would have to like come down if you were doing something really crazy, but they were always treating you like a human being. Whereas uh, in he said, you know, the descriptions he had from like like people of color growing up in like urban ghettos is that the police are basically like an invading force that are have no connections whatsoever to the community. And so, like he said, you know, my mom was a complete fuck up and she was abusive and she was, you know, would just do outlandish things and the cops would be called. But, you know, one of the cops in the car went to high school with her. So he'd be like, oh, you know, like he'd still put her in the car, but he didn't smash her head on the roof on the way in. And he didn't treat her like an animal. He just treated her like a fuck up that he knows. Oh, yeah. Look, in in low income neighborhoods, we when I was growing up, like, I mean, we used to to call the cops 5-0, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the security guards would call 2.5s. But... (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I never heard that. Sorry, security yeah. guards. Uh, but um, you guys do important work. Uh, but, uh, you know, we saw them as and, – and here's the thing too. Like I knew cops. I knew the sheriff, right? But we saw the police in general as like another gang, right? There was too much of that kind of behavior from them. It was too much gang-like behavior. And um, my, my friend – uh, Gabe Morgan, who's sheriff here where I live, um, has talked often about the value of community policing. It's, it's, it's one of the changes he's tried to make here um, because he knows it's a problem. And, and, you know, that's what, that's where I, you know, I'm flabbergasted by the sort of armchair statisticians who say there's no problem with police brutality. I know personally several police officials with whom I am friends that say unequivocally that it is a problem that they're trying to address. So, what are they somehow blinded by again George Soros and the liberal media? Yeah. Um, or well, I have, I have, I have like tons of about? I have tons of like former students because uh, I think I mentioned to you the where I teach at John Abbott it's the, it's the it has the largest police tech program in the province of Quebec so a lot of my former that. students are cops and I see them you know like they they it's a common occurrence to be walking down the street with me and a cop car stops. Professor Aber, like they wave and stuff like that. So I know a lot of cops, and they've told me personally of times where they, uh, you know, really lost it and did something like that they weren't proud of. Like so, no, it's it's absolutely a real thing. I mean, but how does your friend the sheriff? How does he? And how do you? Because this is, seems to me where the money is. Like, how do you define community policing? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a tough thing to define. Um, well. I would say there, there are a couple of things. Number one, 
things like walking the beat and talking to people. And and, and to wit, in that uh, that uh, documentary, Crime and Punishment, I mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier, there was a cop was being downgraded for doing that. He was being downgraded and marginalized in the police force because he was relating to people. He was talking to people. He was diffusing things, de-escalating. He was downgrading because he wasn't getting arrests out of it. Right? Wow. wow. Also, now this is the stickiest thing possible in this situation. Hiring police from within the community. But when you've got mistrust from decades and decades, you know, I always pose this question to people and they can never answer it. In what decade did the police begin treating black people fairly? When did that happen? Right? You know, was it during the civil rights movement? We have proof that that's not true. Was it during the 70s? You know, we had all the strife in the neighborhoods. We have proof that that's not true. Was it in the 80s, right? With, with, the, with the drug wars in, in the 80s and 90s? Well, okay, let's say we get past all that and they just started treating us fairly in like 1995. <laughs> you know, bro, like, like I, my beard's not all white yet. And, and I, I had graduated college in 1995. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. like, yeah. this is, I, so I think that's something that needs to happen, but it's also part of the problem. I mean, the other thing, too, is that. Because that, that so by the way, that, the reason I asked you that is that I, I was sort of leading you a bit because I, I actually think that is one of those reforms that we could make that is so straightforward and so easy. Yeah. And it would, like, right now, I don't know if it's the same thing in the States, but uh, I think it is. But in Canada, you cannot run for political office in a particular riding unless you live in that riding. Oh, it's right? true here, too. See, Although yeah. people like Hillary Clinton get around that. They, you know, Hillary Clinton get... ain't from no New York. Yeah, like, right? You know, she's from but Arkansas. You, you, know? have <laughs> to, you have to live... You have to live in the riding and you have to live there there's like a qualification i think like if you have two two residences you have to live there i think maybe more than half the year or something like that right so um and and that is just on a very straightforward thing that how can you properly represent your riding if uh if you don't actually live there and i think a very easy fix is if we just said like you know we don't even have to say 100 percent we just have to say 50% of every police department have to the people have to live in the district that they police. If yep. you made that one change, I think it would just have amazing, amazing way more than any like sort of Starbucks re, you know, sensitivity training or, <laughs> or if you just had people living oh, sorry, the where Starbucks sensitivity right? Cuz this is I mean, me you know, you know I like I like this guy <laughs> You know, I like this guy like Nassim Nicholas Taleb, right? And his, yeah. his new book, Skin in the Game, he says that you can solve so many of the world's problems by just making sure that the people who make decisions have a stake in the outcome. So he says, uh, if, if you don't have a direct blood rel- relative that's going to go to war and you're a politician, you don't get to vote on whether we yep. go to war with another yep. country. If you, uh, if you actually are making decisions on the school budget, school board budget, your kids can't be in a fucking private school. Your kids have to be in that public school, so they have to deal with we, the consequences. We have a right? secretary of education who neither her nor herself or her, neither her nor her children have ever attended public school. It's insane. I right, mean, right? that's so, like... Yeah, yeah, that's that's nuts. No, you know? he, he and, mentions and, her actually as a perfect example of somebody with yeah. no and like you should and likewise if you're in law enforcement, I actually to me, I mean obviously I'd like to have both, but like I would rather have a cop who's like, 
you know, personally as an individual, a little bit of like maybe like a racist, a little bit of a bigot, but who actually lives in the neighborhood where she's policing or where he's policing. I'd rather have that person than somebody who passes some sensitivity exam and lives far away because sooner or later, the temptation to view the community as other is going to be irresistible regardless of what your your biases are. Yeah, I mean, you know, I will tell you something about most black folks that I know, uh, and that includes me. Um, the The fact that someone says they're a liberal holds no water with me. Because <laughs> we I've know noticed, lots, of, yeah, yeah. lots of racist liberals, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. who, who instead of, you know, one, one group is like, well, I hate. You know, I, I can't stand you niggers or or Staten Island. Yo, you moolies. You know, like, I yeah. mean, and the other group is, oh, oh, you poor little black soul. You know, let me let me take care of you. You know, like I we it's so funny too. like the, the assumptions people make, like most of us are, you know, see the disenfranchisement of the economy. Most of us hate welfare, too. You know, like we. You know, most folks would rather have a life. And, and now I know some people have sort of acquiesced to this and, and they just say, well, this is how life is. I better get what I can. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always going to happen. You know, it's like it's like if you if you have no game, you know, and you ain't that good looking, you're going to settle with whoever want to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, <it's> like, <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm kidding, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Like, like, um. No, I mean, if you don't have anything, I, I'll tell you a story. I was on unemployment for a bit. Um, I lost a job and first job I ever lost in my whole life. Uh, we had my first daughter on the way and um, I was. This is when you're, a, this is when you're an exotic dancer, right? Like- right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Peaches uh, yeah. was my name. Um, so. Yes, yeah, specialized in, in glitter bombs yeah. and twerking. Uh, <laughs> and, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. and like, uh, you know, what is it? Mate, what are those like uh, parties that the girls have before the wedding? They're like... Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Bachelorette parties. <laughs> Bachelorette yeah, parties, yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was on unemployment. And, you know, look, I, I've also had a dual career as a fitness instructor. And so I taught, like, get this. I taught, this is how messed up the system is. They wouldn't help me find a job. I asked them, I said, is there any way? They were like, no, you have to show you've applied for jobs. We, won't, we don't have a job finding service. We don't have, I was like, look, I, you know, I'll do anything. I don't, I, I'm not one of those people, like, I don't care about titles that much, you know, unless they, you know, if I tell you my, my first, you know, if I tell you there's a doctor in front of my name and you're going to give me some money and some access to resources for that, yeah, I'll use it. But mm-hmm. I don't really care about my title like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would do anything. I would have done anything to feed my family, uh, anything. Could not find anything, partly because I have an advanced degree and you know, a history and positions of influence, right? And so people are like, you're not gonna stay, we're not gonna hire you, right? So I was teaching a yoga class here and a kid's fitness class there, one hour a pop, right? Because I taught on 30 different days, a one hour class within a 90 day period, they retroactively removed my unemployment and made me pay it all back. I just paid it off two years ago. Wow. I was paying the Virginia Unemployment Commission every month while I was trying to get back on my feet, right? And still paying for daycare, right? For, for a young child. And, and so that's how messed up the system is. And so I would have been better served, John. See, see, people act like, well, people on 
public assistance just don't want to work. My family would have been better off and better able to eat and make rent if I had just chosen to not work at all. Yeah. Oh, it's the but same thing. It's, yeah, yeah. No, it's the same I was thing. trying to do something. I was trying yeah. to lay some groundwork. I was trying to – and in fact, part of the problem was that I waited too late to get unemployment insurance. And so there was the dispute as to whether my former job would pay for it and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, so like because I waited – you know why I waited? Because I did not want to go on public assistance because I wanted to work. Mm-hmm. I like working. I, yeah. you know, I had one job for one, for three months in my adult life. I've only ever had multiple jobs, right? So this is me. I like working. I like to do stuff. I like to make a change, right? I like to contribute, but they won't let you do that, right? So if you're on welfare and you work, they'll subtract it. If you're on unemployment insurance and you work, they subtract it and it's not enough to live on. The jobs you can get while you're on that, that are part-time usually, and especially in a depressed economy are not enough to live on either. So man, yeah, people make the decision like, okay, yeah. I've left the workforce, yeah. right? So I think that that's part of this too. Like people from the outside have these attitudes, right? Like, you know, um, and I can tell you unequivocally, you know, people will look at me and say, well, you worked hard. You got yourself out of the situation. The only reason we were homeless, family. Mm-hmm. We don't have family that has like, money like that. We have family that can give us 200 bucks for a light bill here and there or like help us get a car repaired. Yeah. That's the only reason. If not for family, we would have been homeless. And then people would have been looking at me as some guy who didn't want to take responsibility and didn't want to work, right? Especially if you're a person of color. People are like, see, that's how they are, you know? Yeah. And so this is, this is how we look at folks. And I think that community is part of the issue that... I have a friend, you'll see him comment on some of my stuff sometimes. Um, uh, his name is Danny Adcock. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I tell him all the time he's wasted his life because he has the perfect name for a porn star. <laughs> uh, and he's totally, he has a catchphrase ready in that and everything too. He's wasted his life. But Danny and I went to high school together, right? Yeah. And so if he says something to me, I will take time. We disagree vehemently on a bunch of issues, I've right? I've noticed, yeah. And because... He has not had the same experiences or had access to the same stories that I have, right? So he thinks things that aren't necessarily true. Sometimes he'll be like, you know what? You're right. You know, sometimes he'll be like, no, I still disagree. I'll talk to him. You know why? Because I know him. But like Joe Blow, you know, you come at me like that. I don't know you. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time on you. I don't know yeah. you. And so part of the issue is we're talking to people all the time, like, like the social media thing, right? We're talking to people all the time that we don't know, right? So if I know that you're really a person who's just sort of misguided, whatever. And, and I know you and I know, look, you, you contribute to community, all that kind of stuff. Okay, cool. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. But if you're just some guy spouting off on social media, that's what I see about all these racial issues. The guys just spouting off on social media to win debates to, because they like a friendly debate. None of this is fun for me. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, it's not fun. I don't like talking about this stuff. I hate it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't think you think I want to deal with race. I'm a I'm mixed. You think you think you really think I want to be caught between black folks and white folks? You really think that's what I want my existence to be? You really think that I want my, you know, Middle Eastern slash Latina looking uh oldest daughter and uh my blonde blue eyed youngest daughter to be seen as different people, as different groups because of the way they look. No, I don't like any of this. And and I think that's the 
another thing that 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 I see that, that people think that folks like me who discuss this stuff do it for attention, right? Do I, or or that we're just doing it because we're you know privileged. I lost a career as a speaker in the fitness field because I spoke out on these issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, 2011. $3,000 from University of California at Berkeley to speak. I was traveling to Canada to speak on fitness. I was being flown I remember when you were doing your whole play gym. thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember that. As soon as I started speaking out on all this stuff, everything dried up immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, did I give any bad talks? Go look at the videos. Did I not, did I not have knowledge and, you know, to share and wisdom to share on working with kids? Go look at the video. Go mm-hmm. look at what people were saying about my stuff, right? Okay, so so this idea that we just talk about this stuff because we just like it, and you know, we're just trying to get attention. I would love to not have attention for stuff like this. But here's the thing that they don't understand: I can't sit here in my place of privilege and influence and uh, access. Actually, I mean, we have two family members that are judges. We have. A family member that's mayor. We have another family member that's a delegate, right? I have access. I also have a following on social media. It's not a huge following. I don't have 20,000 people following me, but I do have a few thousand, right? I can't sit on that and leave my people behind. Who does that, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I discuss issues like this, you know, despite what people want to think, right? I can't leave my cousins behind. I can't yeah. leave my brown skin nephews behind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like so. my mother. My mother always told us when we were growing up, uh, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. That like, you uh, you get certain gifts, and then you you have kind of an obligation to give back. You know, the more that you get, if you get uh, a very strong body, if you get a strong mind, if you get a good voice, if you get, then you should use those gifts to help other people. Right, that in your family, in your community, in your society, and stuff like that. So no, I Absolutely. I'm totally down with that. Yeah. But uh, just to to circle back to to your T-shirt and to you know Colin uh, Kaepernick and to like taking a knee and all this stuff, I got to tell you my you know I gave you that example of like the anti-slavery activists like the the Frederick mm-hmm. Douglasses and the Theodore Dwight Welds who basically had your strategy completely, which was you you show how actually our cause is is kind of in keeping with the spirit of America, right? And then you have the William Lloyd Garrison technique, which is you burn the Constitution, which completely alienates so many people. I mean, if you look at what alienated people the most about the Charlottesville uh, white nationalists, like marching with the tiki torches, all of these hardcore right-wing conservative Trump supporters came out the next day And you know what they said again and again? People like Orrin Hatch. Orrin Hatch was so angry, like he was like shaking. And he goes, you know, my family did not fight against the Nazis to hear, you know, Mm -hmm. them like shouting Nazi slogans and getting not properly responded to. So what bugged him so much was that this was anti-American. Right. And that like Mm -hmm. really riled him. Right. So there are Trump supporting members of my family in places like Ohio, who they, they big they voted for him big Trump supporters MAGA hats and the whole bit when they see uh, Colin take a knee to them that is the equivalent not of what you're doing with that T-shirt they see it as the equivalent of burning the Constitution on the Fourth of July that he's he's not he's not speaking out against like you know for Black Lives Matter or against police brutality he's 
burning the flag. You know what's so wild to me about that? And, and, and quite frankly, you know, all due respect to your family members, so disingenuous about it. Kneeling is and always has been a sign of submissive respect. In fact, I'm sure you know this story, maybe your family members don't. The reason Colin Kaepernick went from sitting to kneeling was at the behest of a veteran that he flew out. The veteran contacted him and said, this really hurts me. I fought for this country. Colin flew him out to talk to him. Now, would a guy that hates cops and hates people and hates America do that? No. When the guy said, one of the things we do in the military to show respect is kneel. Would you consider doing that? Colin said, yes. And that's why people started kneeling was literally out of a sign of respect. And in almost every culture that I can think of, kneeling is a sign of submission and respect. Submission to something greater, right? When you get knighted, you kneel before the crown. I mean, you, you know, you kneel to propose to your wife, right? Uh, you know, this, this is something that people do to show respect and love. But yet, because he did it, and because it was about this issue, but All I think I think I think you know regardless of the kneeling I think what the message is it's like if you're in a very uh, religious environment right and and they say like let's bow our hair, heads in prayer right and even if you're like a complete atheist, and you're like, this is all bullshit. You know, most people, they'll just like kind of mm -hmm. put their hands together and they'll put their head down. Like just as a sign of respect, you just you follow the the crowd. Right. And so what I see him doing, it's funny because the first time I saw him do that, I immediately thought of, you know, because I was raised very intensely religious. And so I, I thought immediately of like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Right. When King Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, bow down to our idol and they say like no because we we believe in jehovah we believe in god and like we're not going to and so nebuchadnezzar like throws them in the furnace and of course they don't but you know go to the fire and they never get burnt right like so like going into the fire they don't but i thought it was that where you're being an authority figure is saying participate in this group ritual and show respect to this symbol, and you're saying, no, I'm not going to participate. And, 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 but Colin Kaepernick's gesture does not do this. It says, respectfully, no. Respectfully, no. Think about this. If you're in a banquet hall with a Catholic priest leading prayer, and your child was molested by a Catholic priest, you bow on your head? Hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. Now, would you see that person not bowing their head because a Catholic priest molested their child as more or less of a problem than the, than the priest molesting the child? <laughs> in this case, yeah. in the case of Black Lives Matter, they are prioritizing the show in front of the symbol, which I might call virtue signaling, mm -hmm. which is something the alt-right tends to rail about. Mm -hmm. It's a virtue It's by definition a virtue signal. Yeah. They're prioritizing a virtue signal over the actual lives being, uh, you know, hurt or ended. And and I I might also add this: a lot of people try to use these statistical analyses and make it about the killings. It is a continuum of harassment, brutality, and killing. That's the problem, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what he's talking about. Also, the idea, and, and, and by the way, you should know, I started to make this shirt with the image of Kaepernick. 
Oh, wow. But I didn't. <laughs> I didn't because of that reason. Because I said, I'm not going to give you a chance. I'm not going to give anybody a chance to get out of my trap. Yeah. I'm going to trap you yeah. into talking, into having this conversation with me. You're going to have this. So I'm going to yeah. put the flag up and I'm going to put this statement up. And you better sit with it. It's, ch- it's, try checkmate. To say anything it's to me. checkmate. It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. It's like, what are you going to say? You don't stand for the principles? And then the person, if the next question in their mind has to be, well, wait a minute. What's more important, <laughs> the flag or the principles that the flag stands for? Uh-oh. Like, you know... <laughs> Obviously, it's the principles. Yeah, yeah, it's the principles yeah, 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 yeah. that it's it's jujitsu. It's amazing. It's like, <laughs> it's like rhetorical jujitsu. It's uh, it's brilliant. Anyway, I I I guess we we should close up now. But I just I really encourage all of our listeners to go to. Can you tell what's the website to get one of these T-shirts? Uh, symbioticswag.com. I don't want to make an assumption that everybody knows how to spell sim- symbiotic. So S Y M B I O T I C S Y M B I O T I C swag, all one word.com. Yeah. And uh, I got, I got one for my, for my wife, who's a very, thank you, by who's, the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. who's a, a very patriotic American. And she has, you know, it, it's interesting because I've seen in her, cause she's a hardcore patriotic American and I've seen it, it's a kind of patriotism that I didn't, I wasn't aware of growing up in Canada because she is very, very critical of, you know, American foreign policy and certain you know, policies of the government. And she's very kind of, you know, very much on the left. But at the same time, she's hardcore patriotic. So when there's a kind of knee jerk anti-Americanism in Canada, especially in the Canadian left. And she would get into big arguments at like dinner parties and storm out and like, because people would just say these like anti-American things. And she'd say, no, America's, yeah, you know, is a great ideal. And it's, it's just that, you know, critique specific Americans and specific policies don't kind of trash the whole thing. And that's what I think a, a really good kind of image like yours does is it forces people to, up to to pay attention to the higher ideal right rather than we just... we, we could be so great yeah we we could be so great uh and and um that's you know why i take exception with the maga thing you know make america great again for whom i mean make america greater than it ever could have imagined itself being i mean you know one before we wrap i, I just want to make one more analogy I, I i used to coach kids i used to do youth athletic development as you know um, you know, in, in addition to all the play stuff, right, that, that I advocated for. Um, and one of the things that I talk to my kids about is, is that you have no idea how amazing you can be. I still say that to my students, you know, that a lot of my students uh, that take my physio class are, you know, they're sort of afraid of science. They have a aversion to sciencey things, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I tell them all the time and I try to show them this over time, like, you know, by using different approaches to learning. Look at what you can do. You didn't know you could do that, you know, and, and that's kind of what I'm trying. I, I had this uh, piece that I put out a while back called America's Your Child. Um, I, I, you know, I, I got a little raw in it, or whatever, but um, that's my, you know, America's not your daddy that, that you, you have to look up to and, and, and say, you know, oh, you can do no wrong. You're my hero. You're my father. America is your child. America is yours to raise, right? Mm-hmm. It's ours to raise together. We're co-parenting America, mm-hmm. right? And if we don't call America on its shit, mm-hmm. right? Would you, if you see me in the store, my child's like knocking stuff off the shelf and I don't say anything, 
you would say I was a bad parent, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Well, we're being really bad parents to America because we're not calling it on its actions. We're not making it take responsibility for what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my view. Yep. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And um, uh, I encourage listeners to, you can follow uh, Dr. Kwame Brown at The Hood Neuro. It's that you could put that in on it's a Facebook group, the Hood Neuro, and then on Twitter. No, 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 no. What the, is the, the uh, Hood Neuro is on Twitter? Yeah, uh, the Hood Neuro is on Twitter. Yeah. Okay, what is your you one on? Careful if you follow me. You yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I could follow him at the Hood yeah. Neuro, and what is your if, Facebook uh, group? So if you want to have some real discussions about this and many other issues, I mean, we talk about everything from agriculture to you know cooperative economics to racism to education. Uh, but we do so in a respectful manner and, and in a way, even if we disagree where we come back again the next day. Right. So my old boss used to say, walk, walk, uh, go toe to toe and walk out shoulder to shoulder. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you act a fool on this group, I'll let you know if you act a fool, that's, that's my parents' expression. If you act a fool, I'm going to 86 your ass. Right. So, um, the group is called the global neighborhood. Okay. Uh, so if you join that, come and, and, uh, and, and just make sure you act right. Yeah. Okay. So, All right. <laughs> thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. All right thank you. You Take too, care. John. Bye. Appreciate you, man. All right.